It seems like a really archaic disease. I thought they'd face yeah. it. Well, I, I, I got it from having leprosy, and it spread <laughs> to my throat, so now I'm uh, yeah. duly afflicted. <laughs> yeah, leprosy. Uh, what, what else? I, I Obviously, bubonic plague. Consumption. Cholera, yeah, consumption. I was thinking cholera, cholera, cholera but I think cholera. cholera. But cholera is uh, still around. It's and still it, around if your if your wastewater is not properly contained. You could get still get cholera. Yeah. Um, well, and then there's always these uh, diseases that come back that have big comebacks. Yeah. Like uh, should I, maybe I should light a candle and say look more better. Hold on, hold on one second. Oh, we're not gonna. Andy's not gonna be filming it, right? Oh, you're not. Oh, okay, cool. No, nope. you can I, you can even turn the camera off if you want to, but uh, some people oh, like yeah. to have it on. Whatever. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I know somebody or some people who teach classes and uh, you know on Zoom, and half of the students turn the camera off because it's like, you know, uh, and so it's weird because they're teaching these black boxes, yeah. disembodied voices and shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, anyway. I know some people who, like, get hired to do uh, kind of, like, corporate responsibility lectures, like maybe, you know, radical history to, like, a real estate foundation, you know, like the Lower East Side or, like, a racial sensitivity or something like that. And they're just giving their class or their talk to, like, 30 execs or whatever, bureaucrats, all with yeah. their cameras off, and they don't ask any questions or comment or anything. So uh, they, they don't know if they're talking to anybody. It's just, like, this... Totally just, perfunctory gig. Lecturing into the void. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I recognize you now, but I didn't, I just, all I saw before was this laryngitis, you know, that's all yeah, I, I know. This is kind of laryngitis, but. <laughs> laryngitis, man, that's, that's me. So, I'm going to, I'm going to pop on in the beginning to like, um, to say hi to the listeners, but I'm not going to stick around with this croaky voice and that sounds like shit, but I'll stick along in the chat and I'll be like, you sound like you're from Colombia. From Colombia. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> Kalo K. Three voices down there. I think it's a good broadcast voice. Think about NPR. They only hire people with laryngitis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or some affliction or something. Yeah. They're all afflicted. <laughs> You do, you do you could be like a DJ who's in in their last days, you know, but they you know the, yeah. he's just too beloved to kick him off the air. Diane like, Reams, like if Diane uh, Reams, Diane Reams, there was tons of outcry and they couldn't get rid of her, even though she's like. <laughs> I, think, that, I, I think I I might sound a little bit like Larry King in his elder years. Sure, you know? or or, or yeah, Dick Larry. Clark after he had the stroke and he was still doing yeah. the rock and New Year's Eve. This conversation is making me feel so good about myself. <laughs> well, you're beloved, and your voice. Is great. Okay, um, no, I think I think your voice is fine, but I understand if you don't want to be part of it. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I'll I'll be like I said in chat, and I'll be like participating through Andy. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, groovy. Well, yeah, let's get started. All right, sure. Oh, yeah. Um, Kick it off. So, uh, thanks for. Tuning in, everybody. We're joined by author, rock singer, uh, and some of my favorite bands like The Nation of Ulysses, Makeup, and Chain and the Gang. Um, bands coming out of the Discord scene, but continuing on to the present day. Uh, the former sassiest boy in America, Ian Sfinonius. Thanks Hi, for joining us. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a privilege to be here with you. And uh, I think we're going to really... Do some problem solving. Yeah. So on the podcast, I love it. I I'm gonna jump in here and say real quick to all the listeners out there, I got sick and I had to work through it, which means I have laryngitis, and I'm not gonna subject all of you to that for the entirety of this episode. So like a medium, I'm gonna be in chat and like communing through Andy to Ian and to all of you. So this is the last you'll hear me croak on this episode. Yeah. I'll be reading your questions and um. Maybe I won't say which ones you sent in the chat and just assume just everyone can play a fun game and guess who's asking yeah, the question. Guess whose question. If it, if it involves like uh, German political economy in the 1970s, well, you know, right. that's Andy. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm um, jumping to chat, boys. Okay. Bye. 
Yeah, so I mentioned your sassy past because you've now continued uh, uh, in that tradition, but you've brought it to a new field. You've brought it to the Marxist polemic, and this is your new book, Against the Written Word, which is a polemic not just against certain kinds of literature and certain kinds of books or media, but against the written word itself. doesn't get more polemical than that, right? Yeah, so, it, well, it's it's a book. It's the first book to stand against literacy, and um, and it's just uh, questioning. It's basically the the last book you'll have to read. It's uh, the book to end all books, and it's the idea of it is um, it's just really questioning the 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 kind of conceit that universal literacy is, um, you know. Or, or it's basically asking why universal literacy, whose program uh, was, you know, was this and why are we all forced, coerced to read at a really young age and who does it serve and what what is its purpose? Why does the state and it's a, the agents of authority like parents and teachers equate literacy with moral goodness and uh, what do we end up reading um, especially in the digital world where more than ever the you know, reality has been reduced to words, you know, and this kind of legalese jargon and this sort of, um, you know, reduction of the self to certain terminology and define, you know, d- definitions, uh, and this idea that we're constantly self-defining, for these robot algorithms, you know, for greater social control and the, you know, and, and that, you know, what, what's the purpose of literacy? It's really to, to enlist the working class uh, in the, you know, for the, you know, the, the cause, you know, the causes that the, the ruling class, you know, choose for us to, you know, be, you know, whatever, you know, choose, you know, through their, their the media. And, uh, you know, so that that's basically, that's the, the book in a nutshell, or that's the essay in a nutshell. The book is actually 19 essays, all of which cover wildly divergent topics. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's basically the book. It's my fourth book, and they're all on Akashic Books from Brooklyn. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a book of essays, essentially. And it's, I think it's uh, provocative. It's a good read. Yeah, I had a lot of fun reading it. And <clears throat> I've read a couple of your other books, too. And uh, this is so that's why it's sort of surprising to me that you've you've written a book against books itself. Like, do you think you're you, you say this is the last book anyone will have to read? Is it the do you think it's the last one you're ever going to write? Probably not. Probably not. But yeah, it is. No, in fact, I have an, another book that I'm working on. But this is the book. This is. But nobody should read that book. <laughs> that next book, you should only read this book. You should read this book and get it all out of the way. The book might seem expensive to some of you who are on a fixed income, but think of how much money it's going to save you in the future, in a book-free future. You know, it's just really going to. You know, it's just a. It's going to solve the problem. Of buying books, no, but seriously, it's um, you no. Know, the book is sort of, um, you know, just talking about talking about the use of literacy and why you know why it's considered a moral imperative. It's not it's not a law, it's a moral imperative to be literate. And what do we end up reading? We read this kind of oligarchs, you know, you know. Uh, you know the all the the you know the 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 media, which is you know this sort of narrative imposed on us by oligarchs. We're not reading, you know, we're not typically reading Chaucer. We're typically reading, you know, this muck. But you know, I think a lot of our audience is reading like Raoul Venigam and uh, Aaron Cometbus and uh, Elena Ferrante and Ulysses Speaks. You know, aren't these worthy? Uh endeavors of the written word well I, you know they are the, you know it's too bad we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater but it's just what has to happen sometimes you know we gotta throw out no, the baby it's, a, it's, it's obviously a, it's a polemic and you know people can take take uh take the parts that are useful and leave behind the you know you know i i, I just I, it's uh you know i i thought it was an important it was an important 
idea, you know, which is just, you know, what, why, you know, why, you know, universal literacy, why, why is that presumed to be so important and who kind of sponsored this idea? It's really a, it's a project of the bourgeoisie and it's, it comes along with the enlightenment, which is essentially the, you know, the revolution against the aristocracy and the church. And, um, and so it's, so you think, okay, well, what, what, you know, it's the whole pen is mightier than the sword idea, which is, you know, sort of, uh, a push by the, the, you know, you know, it's like essentially, you know, the word, you know, so the word weapons and, you know, we, we just have to think, you know, think about, you know, the use of the use of literacy i think that's that's sort of the idea of the book obviously i i do like reading you know love sonnets and things like that yeah but you know that's like a little bit passe i think you know the vast majority of people are kind of sick of reading and i you know i don't know a lot of people who really read a lot like maybe read one or two books a year or or less that might be more the average so this might be like a pretty popular concept in a way. Well, you think that's what people say. They say, well, nobody reads anymore anyway, but really we're reading more than ever because, uh, like I said, the world has been kind of reduced to, you know, to words, you know, like our experience of the world is more through this, you know, whatever, you know, the, the you, know, you know, internet blurbs and comments and, you know, this and that and, Obviously, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, yeah, it's, yeah I, I feel like we're, yeah, we're just, we, yeah, we were more, we're more word heavy than we've ever been. We spend our days writing and responding to emails and uh, text messages and, um, and more than ever, we're parsing our words, you know, to, you know, get a point across to uh, an audience that doesn't understand nuance or ambiguity or um, inference uh, because the world the world has been so reduced to this kind of legalese jargon. Do you know what I mean? Like, and everybody's really aware of it and we've conformed accordingly. So while literature used to seem like a fun and, you know, exciting way to exchange ideas, it, more and more it's a sort of... Uh, it's sort of a, you know, a prison in a way. So that's sort of the, that's kind of the, 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 uh, the thrust of the essay. Yeah. And, and later in the book, it's sort of rounded out quite a bit more with talk about social media and the way activism is captured by social media, the way, you know, these uh, algorithms start to speak in ways or these robots start to make arguments in ways that are indistinguishable. It's not specifically about the written word. Um, it does seem to be more about media and the way media is structured in general, which makes me kind of worried podcasts don't get a pass. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm really um, new to the world of podcasts. I'm sort of a... Yeah, so I... Yeah, there's no critique of podcasts. So you're... so it's, it's, But also podcasts are just a sort of conversation... And there's still a sort of tone, you know, we're, we have voices and there's tone and we can chuckle and, you know, so there's, it's actually a more kind of human and intimate uh, mode of communication than this kind of, you know, reduction of the world into this, you know, into these, uh, you know, it, it is, the book is specifically against the written word, you know, it's not saying against communication. And it's not saying against the language, it's saying against the written word and the imposition of this kind of, you know, I don't know, you know, this, this, you know, this, yeah, this prison camp, this prison camp of phonetic, phonetic letters. Mm. But you, in the book, you also make a, a number of, of counter proposals and you, you mentioned the prison camp and you actually propose in a couple places and actually uh, sort of flesh out the idea of a re-education camp the well the re-education camp is a really fascinating idea i'm not really i'm saying 
I guess the, the reintegration camp is um, uh, like just a, that's just something that what I'm talking about, you know, the, you know, the, you know, Mao's China and the cultural revolution and the idea of media as a re-education camp, you know, and the, and the, the way that people can be sort of, you know, I don't know, um, you know, yeah, just uh, indoctrinated with media. So it's not, it's, I don't think there's, I, I, I forget, is there actually a proposal for a re-education camp in the book? I forget there's a lot, there's well, a there's, lot of content in the there's book. There's something there's that I sort of, of, maybe I was uh, using my imagination too much, but I thought the, maybe the second oh, yeah. chapter, you, you actually go through a sample re-education camp. It, it seemed like maybe you, this is something you did at Coachella or something. No, yeah, it was actually at a, it was a different um, music festival. I did this lecture and I just reprinted the lecture in the thing because it's so compelling. It's just actually a workshop on how to write a song. So it's talking about how songs are a kind of re-education camp, me, media, pop music, and how they follow this formula, this kind of idea of, um, you know, just a redemptive Hollywood Hollywood ending kind of um, formula. And then it's actually proposing a new method of songwriting, which would follow a kind of Hegelian um, di dialectic, you know, a kind of, yeah, and it would be a way to reform society from this, the unreal expectations engendered by pop music, which are always based on this idea of complaint um, and then sort of, or, you know, just this emotional model of pop music and, you know, just, it was, and so, so that's, that's a pretty good article for anybody who's maybe involved in music or songwriting. I think it's, uh, it's actually, uh, I, I think it's, so yeah, I guess you're right. There is the idea of the re-education camp in, in, in that. Yeah, you're right. And then broader than that in, in the previous essay about, uh, against the written word, um, you, also propose rock and roll as the sort of antidote um, to the the tyranny of the written word. Could you explain what you meant by that? Well, you know, when rock and roll began, it was really considered a threat to literacy. It was considered, um, it was thought that it was going to create illiteracy in its listeners. And um, so, you know, because it was all based on this nonsense, you know, Bob, Bop a lop a shoebop and you know things that weren't really um, there was no fixed spelling and there was no uh, sort of um, you know syntax that could be understood around this uh, bop bop a loobop stuff and um, so it was very threatening to the to the powers that be before it was rehabilitated and used as a kind of Cold War weapon but um, so that you know when I was thinking about that I was like oh well maybe. Rock and roll is really the antidote to literacy, but rock and roll in its initial primal form before it got literate, because of course, you know, the poets took over and um, made it into a kind of, you know, literary art form, you know, with Nick Cave and Leonard Cohen and people like that. And the way you periodize the history of rock is particularly interesting. It, it seems like that primal stage is the 50s, right? Like Little Richard, yeah. Rock Around the Clock. Is that is that basically correct? Yeah, I would say that rock and roll before before it was sort of broadly televised, it was you know it's more you know it's um it's it's about yeah it's, yeah it, yeah exactly the you know late fifty I mean before it became a corporate art form really you know if you look at early rock and roll it's all independent labels. A lot of them were run by teenagers and, um, you know, uh, African-Americans and women, actually. It was a not it was a, outside of the corporate kind of structure. The corporation, the, the major labels didn't know what to do with rock and roll. It was, and then they finally figured out how to kind of rehabilitate it. And that's when it was sold to as a, you know, suburban, suburban form. But in the beginning, it was truly, a, you know, it was a real wild west yeah not only the the production of it was like that but the consumption of it was among these this new group of people the teenagers um who 
were living in the for the first time growing up in the, this new place called the suburbs. And they were listening to this music and just rioting. Like they just got up out of their chairs if they were seeing it in a theater or seeing a band and started dancing. And then if anything would set them off, they would just start. And there was actually rock and roll riots, which is sort of what helped popularize the music besides the scandals about yeah. the sexuality and the the race of it. Um, so there was this moment where, you know, the, the rock and roll and delinquency and like the street gang were this deep threat to the heart of like a, a white middle-class American life. Jerry then in the sixties, as you say, yeah. it becomes like poetic with Dylan and becomes like the more serious form of music uh, connected to the, the counterculture. But then you sort of, you make this claim that it like ages every 10 years and then punk is this like middle life crisis where it's like trying to go back to its rudimentary youth. But then where do we end up we, with Steely Dan and uh, Huey Lewis in the news? And then you, I think you sort of imply that it's just dead now, like it's just passed away. And so now it can maybe return uh, to its uh, yeah, primordial. It's a, corpse. Mm-hmm. it's a corpse. So, and it's been, I mean, essentially, well, this is, you know, I mean, essentially rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. It, it, at its dawn, it's sort of threatening, it's rehabilitated, it goes through these phases. And in the book, I make the claim that the phases have always been sort of determined by the light, you know, the life stage of the boomer person who took rock and roll as their kind of like, you know, their sort of, um, you know, their, their, uh, what's it, mouth, you know, their mouthpiece. And, uh, you know, so in the, in the teeny bopper, in their teeny bopper stage, uh, the 50s, it was, you know, about, you know, budding sexuality and that demand to be taken seriously as a sexual, you know, person. And then in the 60s, it becomes about political power. And um, in the 70s, you know, then the people are settling down and rock and roll becomes a sort of, you know, uh, the knowing, you know, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, the Eagles or, you know, the sort of uh, uh, maybe jaded, l- louche, you know, sort of, um, you know, thing. And then in the 80s, of course, you know, it's the corporate, blah, blah, blah. Now, you know, it's obviously, you know, in the stage of dementia or whatever, or it's just dead. And now it can be kind of finally it can be freed. From it's this, you know, this, you know, the the people who run digital media, the people, you know, they've moved on from rock and roll. Rock and roll is totally irrelevant. It's wallpaper. It's just some, you know, it no longer has the social kind of cachet that it used to have. And so in that sense, it's really liberated. You know, it's like it's it's free. And um, and now it's time to sort of, uh, you know, use it again. So that's that's the that's the, the that's the conceit of that. Yeah, I mean, I love that that idea because you know I'm I'm 35. When I was a teenager, there was this great rock and roll revival with like the White Stripes and the Hives and the Strokes and yeah yeah yeahs. And as a in my early teens, I loved that stuff, um, and it led me to listening to Iggy and the Stooges and your bands and. Um, you know, I but like that rants course fairly quickly, and what I was left with was punk, which also I think within the course of the last ten years sort of rants course, and now it just seems like there's nothing left except for like the Arctic Monkeys and Muse, like these these ghosts of a ghost of a ghost that are just doing nothing new, and I'm just wondering what it would look like, or if you have some examples of like rock reviving from its corpse. Well, I mean, I guess the, the way I look at rock and roll really is like, I honestly, I, I just think it's this incredible kind of technology or something. It's like ancient technology. It's like the, you know, it's like the wheel or something, you know, and it's, and the beauty of it is that it's totally really like all the good stuff is just motivated by this energy and maybe personality. And it can always be sort of, revived because it's has no definition it's really just um you know it's just electricity is really what it is you know i mean the way that you define rock and roll is really just it's electric you know so you know like with like the folk thing you know for example you mentioned dylan 
you know, folk music was essentially Stalinist social realism. It was basically like when the FBI destroyed the the communist movement and, you know, with the, the blacklist and all that stuff and suppressed, you know, the Communist Party. And the Communist Party kind of went underground and turned it into folk music. And essentially folk music has the same idea as Stalinist social realism. It's like it had to be authentic of the people. It was against, you know, bourgeois pretense, blah, blah, blah. You had to, you know, kind of, it was against authorship. It was against, um, uh, you know, corporate, you know, it was uh, the idea of like everybody singing along at a hootenanny in a coffee shop. So it was very much against the star system, blah, blah, blah. So when rock and roll, you know, when Dylan went electric, that, you know, Dylan goes electric, he went rock and roll and he betrayed the folk movement and the folk movement was kind of merged with rock and roll. And that's like a real watershed moment because it makes rock and roll into a middle-class expression, you know, essentially, because the folk people were college students. So they represented, you know, and, uh, you know, when the folk thing was happening, rock and roll was very considered very, uh, you know, lowbrow. And uh, so with the folk rock merger, rock and roll became middle class. And that's when you have the beginning of album oriented rock and you have the beginning of the, you know, this idea that the music is supposed to have pro progress, you know, the idea that like, you know, before the, before Dylan goes electric, the Beatles records are all the same. And then after that, then everything turns into this idea of the art as, you know, as a dialectic, it's like progressing and, you know, and, that, and obviously, you know, Bowie is the ultimate example of that idea. This is, oh, it's getting better and it's getting more sophisticated. And it's also you know, individuating prod. too, like the Beatles just start writing their own songs and kind of exactly. reluctantly yeah. playing them together. It becomes heroic right. and individualistic right. instead of this group thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's, it's really, uh, it's, Anyway, the point is, but rock and roll, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's really the greatest art form because it's like something that anybody can do. Anybody can, can revive it. I mean, like you mentioned, like when you were a kid and the White Stripes and all these bands started and it was like so exciting. Well, that can happen again because it did, ha you know, and it, that's evidenced by the fact that it's happened over and over again, you know. In fact, the weird thing about rock and roll revivals is there was already one in 68, you know, like already three years after rock and roll starts getting sophistication, there's already this kind of return to the, you know, return to roots thing. Sha Na Na is, you know, played at Woodstock, that's 69. You know, Ruben and the Jets by Zappa is, you know, whatever, 67 or whatever, or 68. And, you know, that's, and the, you know, the Beatles were trying to do a, a roots revival thing with, uh, with get back you know that was the idea that was really the idea you know so so it's this thing of like it's this idea of returning to the garden like the garden in rock and roll is like the garden of eden that's like the initial burst of like nonsense gobbledygook and the pure sexual energy and all that stuff and everybody's trying to get back there so that's why rock and roll really resembles you know, Christianity or, or any kind of, you know, thing like any paradigm like that, where there's this idea of like the pure beginning and like, how did we get this? The civilization is so corrupting and we have to get back to the garden. So that's kind of, you know, that's, 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 that's rock and roll. It's this idea of like, you know, just, yeah, that primitive priest, it's Rousseauian, you know, it's the Rousseauian idea. It's like Iggy, Iggy, you know, Iggy, Jim Morrison, those guys are Rizzoian figures. They're supposed to be like primitive man, you know. Do you know what I mean? Like take their shirt off and jump around. Oh, sure. I mean, I saw I saw an interview with Iggy. I forgot what, probably in the early 70s where he maybe it was Tom Schneider or something like that. They asked he asked, like, like, what are you doing? Like, what is this? And he's like, oh, well, this is Nietzsche, birth of tragedy. And he just like explains it in philosophical terms, kind of like how you're how you write yeah. and it, it, it's and it's like dead on you know he's he appears to be just this uh neanderthal uh smearing peanut butter on himself but he knows exactly uh, what he's doing yeah 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 he's yeah, trying he's, to uh, de-evolve in a way totally well you know it's funny because 
1969, the song, you know, it's like there's a Wilbert Harrison song called 1960. And, you know, nobody's ever mentioned this as far as I can tell, but it's kind of the same song. You know, it's like he's it's like it goes, it's 1960 and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, you know, he and there's some couplets or whatever. So, yeah, you know, Iggy, you know, played the blues, you know, he went to Chicago and played the blues and stuff. So he was, yeah, he's a very he was really into that that you know just absolute simplest simple simple you know the minimal this you know the ultimate you know because you know as we all know the minimal it's the kind of the greatest sophistication not only that led. but uh what led him to detroit was after he he saw the riots and was like i gotta be there yeah, yeah the, he saw the riots really? and went up there with the yeah they this was revealed in the or I heard this for the first time at least in the documentary that came out about them a couple of years ago uh the Jim Jarmusch documentary I think yeah they, he was in Chicago with one or two bandmates I forgot who they were at that point and they read about the riots and they immediately moved there and started squatting and wow. that's where the Stooges really started. I mean, it's just like a punk rock story that, out of, uh, you know, the 90s in Lower East Side or something. Yeah, that's cr- yeah. I Okay, well, it's interesting because I, um, uh, I was on a plane or I was at an airport in Munich and uh, I was thinking I, I had to get a plane and I was waiting for my plane and I saw this guy and I was like, oh, you know, and it was, uh, I, I was like, oh, that's a jazz musician. I was like, and I, I was like, oh. And it was it was Roscoe Mitchell, and he was waiting for the same plane as me. And uh, and I was like, "Hey, man, you know," I was like, "Are you uh, you know playing some shows or whatever?" And uh, and he you know he was on his way to a festival, but uh, he was reading the book about himself, put out by University of Chicago Press. But then he immediately just started talking about John Sinclair and Detroit. Wow. And all the wow. all the commu- or all the kind of squatted houses in Detroit. And uh you know, you know, cuz I yeah, it's like uh yeah, it was weird. Like he immediately just started talking about MC5, John Sinclair and the whole scene. And uh I was just like, wow, this is so weird. like it, it with that without any prompting from me, you know. It was uh it was pretty funny. Maybe he had just pretty- seen that movie too. Um, well, no, it was before that movie came out, but um, but he was probably reading about it that you know that you know he was probably reading you know the, the book probably was talking about that because you know Art Ensemble of Chicago I, I'm sure they played in Detroit a lot because Ann Arbor and Ann Arbor was just such a huge jazz scene I guess it was you know uh, it's interesting because you know that's where all the draft dodgers would run you know they'd go to Toronto because at the time you could just walk over the border without a passport or ID. Mm. So there was a huge like back and forth with the draft artists. So it was kind of the most radical part of America back then, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like George, actually, if you read George Clinton's book, uh, you know, the, um, uh, he has, a he has his most recent memoir. It's called like, uh, ain't that funk, uh, ain't that, it's called like ain't that I forget funk hard on you or something anyway um and he just talks about you know when he was because he worked as a writer for this um like black hotel magnate in uh Detroit named Ed Wingate who ran a bunch of labels like Golden World and um and uh Wingate Records and uh and he uh so he wrote all you know he wrote a lot of the funkadelic songs as um just songwriter you know like a motown style song you know song person and um and but anyway he just talks about you know because he had a girlfriend in toronto and he's just like you just walk over the border back then it's no big deal yeah it's weird when you think of how controlled our world is at this point i i was in the airport and uh, it was the first time when I, I walked up to the uh, security guard or the the customs guy, and he was like, look in that camera. And I looked in the camera and said, hello, Ian. 
welcomed in the USA. I didn't show them my passport this time. Oh, because they got the biometrics now. Yeah, this was a, this was like a month ago or something. Yeah, they don't even have uh, like at JFK. They used to have those kiosks where you would check in, and people were creeped out by those because they're like semi-robotic. And now they're all gone because they're all just replaced by biometrics, by how you move, by the RFID chip in your passport, that sort of thing. Is yeah, it- but he didn't look at my passport. There's no passport. He just looked in my eye. Well, I think like, I think maybe. Anyway, whatever it is, that feeling like that just reminds me of when I worked at a restaurant and customers would call me by my name, either because I was wearing a name tag and had forgotten, or because they had just heard another employee say my name to me, and I yeah. hated that feeling. Yeah, it's weird. Like, don't I'm not me here. Don't say that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because if you read that book, uh, you know, Brighton Rock by Graham Greene, and and in that book, you know, it's about like, you know, kind of spivs and, uh, you know, criminal, the criminal world and, bright, you know, in the seaside town. And uh, and at one point they're talking about how everybody has everybody has their name that they use for society or for people you don't know. Or, yeah, for people you don't know, everybody's got their fake name and then their real name. And uh, I thought that was interesting because, you know, when you go to Starbucks or something, you order the coffee and they're like, what's your name? And, you know, you don't want to give them your new real name because mm-hmm. you don't want them yelling your name out. Yes. Yeah, I mean, especially in rock and punk, you've got to have a fake name. Almost everybody does. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I love the the ground we've covered so far, um, especially the rock stuff, because I love this idea that rock the dissonance of it, the transgression of it, the nonsense of it can actually help liberate your mind from this constant barrage of propaganda. But I want to I want to push a little bit deeper. And I think you do at different points in the book, like you've got this uh, critique of the alphabet um, at the end of the book, which is really interesting. Uh, and one of the critiques is that there's no lacuna in it. There's no um, silence letters um, there are in other alphabets. Like I think Hebrews got that, but, uh, um, and as a result, like our idea of language is just constant jabbering and sounds. And if you don't know what to say, you say, um, or, you know, some nonsense expression. Um, so, uh, I think that's getting closer to not just critique of certain kinds of media, but a critique of media in general, and towards something where we do need to to really start to think and really start to perceive the situation we're in and think about how we can get out of it, um, we just have to turn it turn it off. Like yeah. we need silence. We need to contemplate. We need to be. We need to not have the uh, temptation of going and listening to a record or going to see a movie or uh, scrolling through Instagram. Um, and that's why I think, and I've been saying this on the show for a long time, that if we're going to really have a revolution, we need to just get rid of the internet, or the internet just needs to go out one day, and then it'll become possible. And I think even probably likely. What do you think of that? Well, did you know? Remember when you know Instagram and Facebook went offline for three hours, four hours, or something? And and remember that, and everybody who worked at those institutions was kind of like locked out of the campus or whatever, and it was like. Anyway, and there was I think there was this collective relief, like if you could gauge such a thing, like the tension and the the kind of like collective sigh of like liberate. Like, I think it, it, it was probably something similar to what, you know, it feels like in the moment of revolution when all of a sudden you can just like do whatever and walk across the street and, you, and there's no, you know, all laws are suspended and all kind of, author, you know, the rep- this kind of, you know, this repression that we just like, you know, that's just like the air we breathe, you know, is like suddenly lifted, you know, that's, I mean, I, I've been saying it for a while, like we have to fill Silicon Valley with blood, you know, like that <laughs> is, they, they, they are, you know, the Silicon Valley is synonymous with the, you know, you don't really hear about the CIA anymore because they are, they are Instagram and Facebook. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's, you know, the war, you, you hear about these, the wars on the population that they fight in Venezuela or whatever, you know, the CIA is like, you know, creating like horrible, you know, this unrest and 
you know, social, you know, whatever, just, you know, just, you know, creating all this conflict. And, and now that's, you know, that's us, you know, that's us. And they, they that's what they're doing to us all the time and creating this mania and fear and, and psychosis. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, yeah, the, the, the internet. And I feel like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's fucked up. Things are fucked up. You know, because at the same time, we're absolutely, you know, you know, we feel compelled to use it. We're addicted to it. It's like, you know, it's, it must be like opium in China in the, you know, in the 18th century or whatever. Or actually, that was the 19th century. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people know they're addicted. They know they don't like it. You know, they, like the, the best week on Twitter was when Musk took over and it seemed like he was really going to destroy it. And people were yeah. were jubilant, like, please, like, get, like, free me from this. Exactly. And, and why can't you free yourself? The same reason, you know, someone who's addicted to a substance can't free themselves. It's not so yeah. simple. Yeah, it's not simple. It's not easy. I mean, it's, you feel like you're, you know, you're going to be a non, you know, a non-person. You feel like you're going to not, yeah, be connected at all to anything. You won't know what's happening no one will know who you are, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's like, it's very much tied in with, you know, very primitive need, you know, I, I think about it a lot because, you know, when I was a kid, you know, you'd get all dressed up and if you're living in the suburbs and, you know, typically there's nothing going on and you didn't, and there was nobody around and sometimes you get dressed up and this is going to sound, you know, really narcissistic or arrogant, but, you know, you'd be like, I look great. And like, there's nothing, nobody can see me and I don't, or, you know, or whatever. I feel really social. I feel like being part of society and I, there's, you know, so you really had to go put yourself out there. You had to go, you know, somewhere, but now I, I think about it like now nobody would ever feel like that. There would never be that sense of like, oh, I am not being, you know, cause it's a human need to be seen. Like that's why you have cafes in France where everybody you know, sets up their chair and looks at, you know, the, you know, it's this idea of seeing and being seen. That's like a really basic human need uh, yeah. to be looked at. And, uh, and uh, anyway, and it used to be something you had to sort of, <laughs> you, had to, you had to work at, you know, but now you just, you would never have to work at it. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. And um, not only that, but like people younger than me don't really have a memory of, of what you're describing. I mean, I'm sure they've felt and done that sort of thing. They've, they went and drank in the parking lot just like, like we did. But uh, like, I just, I just heard this today that um, uh, kids now, like people my age, like when I do a video of myself talking, there's uh, like a second where I'm like checking to make sure it's recording. Um, yeah. but people younger than me don't have that awkward pause. It's just, yeah. they just know immediately when it's recording and start talking because they're just yeah. so locked in and synced into new media and the way of, yeah. uh, of representing themselves that they've, they've sort of just become one with it in terms of their, their being well, and identity. Why, that's why the pandemic was so great because it killed off so many people who were just bad consumers you know it just was like you know for the from the silicon valley perspective it was a real godsend you know because it just got rid of so many people who weren't able to upload the latest app you know and who were clumsy with zoom and um yeah it's just you know so you know i don't know it's just like uh, this is the boomer remover theory of covid exactly exactly uh, so yeah, so we, I, we agree that we have to abolish the internet. That's good. Um, I wonder if we can go even a little farther than that, because, you know, even if, even if we're in this world where we don't no, no one wants to read books anymore, there's no more internet. Um, no one wants to hear music anymore. Uh, we're just in silence and we're, we're in a, the Garden of Eden. Maybe there, maybe there's folk punk. Maybe there's like acoustic rock or something. But no, I think music is the most because music, the function of music is really tied in with 
it's like the most basic evolutionary need to kind of transmit information and the way that you i mean the reason it was it's so effect, like ad jingles like an ad jingle it'll say with you your entire life and it teaches you a lesson that you can never forget so so music is actually like absolutely intrinsic to human develop you know to hum humanity there you, you can't really get rid of music universal literacy on the other hand you can get rid of that all right so maybe this is where we diverge though because uh, I think the root of this problem that that we're talking about is just symbolic culture in general, just like the way um, symbols and obviously there was once very rudimentary symbols that were controlled by people, a cave painting or, you know, the first drummings of music or uh, choral yeah. songs or something. These uh, these first works of art um, that maybe yeah. sort of separated human culture from Neanderthal culture, perhaps. Um, yeah. That just, those were the first memes. They went viral. They developed into new viruses and memes. And now we just live in a world where just like, just like most of our body is filled with these bacteria that we've become symbiotic with. We're symbiotic with all of these symbols and we just have no frame of reference for reality anymore. That's true. The simulation. I mean, the funny thing about that is, yeah. I think about that because when you're young and you hear that phrase, like the personal is political or, or this idea that like, you know, that's so attractive when you're a kid because you're like, oh, so if I wear black shoes, that's like a major statement, you know, or something like that. It's like that, that idea. And it's and it's become like so idiotic where people mistake you know, some, you know, you know, where people are constantly discussing these miniseries and the political significance of these miniseries or, or some sports star wearing like a, you know, a headband or something, you know, it's like, it's completely insane, you know, this kind of, you know, and at the same time, nobody ever discusses, you know, the war in Syria or whatever, <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, oh, some tennis player you know whatever sneezes and it's like and that's all uh, you know that that is considered like uh or you know whatever you know a, a sneeze you know protest sneeze you know or something you know was that Djokovic the the anti-vax tennis player that's who you're referencing no no I don't know I wasn't I wasn't actually you know I forgot about that no I was just Thinking about some symbolic, I, I you're know. trying to make up a ridiculous symbol that no one would care about. Yeah, exactly. But you know, if if Djokovic the sneezed on somebody, that would be a big scandal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it would be a big. Okay, yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah, it's weird, but at the same time, like you know, so-called leftists can't actually countenance the idea of like. You know, I don't know. They would they glaze over if you talk about like the war in Syria. Do you know what I mean? And the you know whatever. I just want to ask like what you think of the left in general. We're we're a leftist podcast, but we're very critical of the left. So, um, you know, don't worry about hurting our feelings or anything. Uh, just, well, the left. Well, yeah. I'm a, I'm I'm a communist, and you know, so I believe in redistribution of the wealth, and you know, a class consciousness, and you know, all that stuff, and you know, or not redistribution, but, you know, um, you know, the idea that, you know, like if you own, nobody should own an oil well, that's, you know, ridiculous, you know, so um, collective ownership. Anyway, um, so, but, you know, what's called the left now, it's actually interesting, because if you think about fascism, you know, and you think about, you know, the, the, the rise of fascism, what was fascism, as we all know, it was the ruling class's response to the threat of communism. And how did they do it? Well, they replaced class consciousness with identity consciousness. So they took the rhetoric and the aesthetics of the left of communism and they applied it to an identity based, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, this kind of identity based social movement. So in Germany, that would be being a German as opposed to Jew. And, uh, you know, because, the you know, you have to have an other and blah, blah, blah. So really identity politics to me are a kind of version. Of, it's kind of a version of the same thing a lot of times, you know. So essentially a, a kind of, a, you know, a fascistic 
rehabilitation, right? So right-wing rehabilitation of, of leftist rhetoric and aesthetics. You know, if you look at the Nazi party, it was the National Socialist Workers Party. They, they, they stole, you know, Bolsheviks all wore leather jackets before the Nazis did, you know? So the Nazis were just taking all the sexy parts, the appealing parts of this working class ideology, and then they changed it into this thing, you know, and that's so that's essentially what you have now, which is a hierarchy of identity, you know, which is sort of a similar thing. I mean, it's obviously completely different because but it's has the same effect, which is to destroy class consciousness, you know, it's destroying class consciousness and it's, and it's making, you know, it's this idea of, you know, you know, everybody's obsessed with, you know, inherited you know, they're, you know, I mean, what, what do you think of that? You think that's a little too provocative? Hey, everybody, this is where we break off the free part of the episode into the bonus part of the episode. We usually save some of the juicier questions for that part. So please become a patron if you want to hear it at patreon.com slash the antifada you get two to three bonus episodes and full episodes a month you get access to our discord community and also you can get a postcard signed by me and stickers antifada sticker pack so if you want that just become a patron at patreon.com slash the antifada it's five dollars a month or cheaper than that you can get a annual discount when you pay for a year up front um, so go to patreon.com slash check that out and if you want a postcard and sticker pack dm me with your mailing address we've got i don't know maybe 40 or 50 left so yeah once again patreon.com slash and then you can hear the rest of this episode with ian's fananias on the other side of the paywall we-